When Brian Kemp ran for governor of Georgia in 2018, this campaign ad got lots of attention. I'm Brian Kemp. I'm so conservative. I blow up government spending. He boasted about his conservative credentials. I got a big truck. Just in case I need to round up criminal illegals and take them home myself. And he ran with the yeah, unbridled support of then President Trump. In just two days, the people of Georgia are going to elect Brian Kemp. Four years later, Kemp is the incumbent up for re-election. But now... Brian Kemp is a turncoat, he's a coward, and he's a complete and total disaster. That's at a rally in Commerce, Georgia, last month. Trump has not only soured on Governor Kemp, he prodded Republican David Perdue, the former U.S. senator, to boot Kemp from office. So what happened? The 2020 election is what happened. Trump pressured public officials in states where vote tallies were tight to overturn the results, citing bogus claims about widespread election fraud. While Kemp didn't debunk those claims entirely that November, he ultimately refused to do what the president wanted. As governor, I have a solemn responsibility to follow the law, and that is what I will continue to do. Purdue, however, has gone all in on Trump's false claims about election integrity in 2020. Our elections in 2020 were absolutely stolen. And Purdue isn't the only candidate this year making false claims about election integrity. Trump has endorsed candidates up and down the ballot in Georgia, many who are challenging incumbent Republicans because Trump says they didn't do enough to help him overturn the election. Georgia's Republican primary in just under a month is shaping up to be a big test with national implications. How much does Trump's endorsement still matter? And do false claims about the 2020 election still have weight? I'm Susanna Capaluto, politics editor at WABE in Atlanta. I'm Emma Hurt, a reporter with Axios. I'm Sam Greenglass, WABE politics reporter. And this is Georgia Votes 2022, a weekly podcast from WABE about the midterm elections in Georgia. I vote because it's a privilege. I vote to do because I want to make an impact. I vote my because local. I want leaders who care voting about Voting is the gift of so freedom. So voting matters to me because I believe there is value in my voice. If anywhere is a center of the political universe right now, it's got to be Georgia. All eyes tonight are on the state of Georgia. across the nation are on Georgia today. All eyes are on Georgia this Georgia is where debates about representation and political power. Rapidly shifting demographics and politics. And the fight for access to the ballot are all unfolding. My name is Stacey Abrams and I intend to be the next governor of the great state of Georgia. Democrat Stacey Abrams wants to be the first Democratic governor in almost 20 years in Georgia. And oh yeah, control of the U.S. Senate might again hinge on Georgia because Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock is up for re-election. For the rest of this year, we're going to take you on the campaign trail and give you a front row seat to all these storylines. We'll also be joined by WABE politics reporter Raul Bally, who's off this week. So let's start with what's most immediately in front of us, the May 24th primaries. Sam, you were at the Trump rally recently. It was supposed to solidify the slate of Trump-backed candidates. What did you hear? So at this point, we have a pretty good idea of what a Trump rally looks like. You know, lots of good outfits, the denim hats bejeweled with Trump's name on it, a guy in an Uncle Sam costume, you know, the Elton John song, Tiny Dancer on blast. You know, we can all kind of picture and visualize it in our heads. But 
at this rally, every Trump-backed candidate got stage time before the former president. And no matter pretty much what position they were running for, there was a very similar through line to their stump speech, playing up false claims that the election was rigged, the election was stolen, etc. And when I talk to voters, it's something I heard from them too again and again, that it seems like that idea is still resonating with voters, at least the voters who would show up at a Trump rally. And while there was lots of admiration for Trump, of course, among the voters who came to his rally, I'm not sure yet if that really translated into support for the slate of candidates that he endorsed. You know, lots of people I talked to told me that they love Trump, but hadn't made a decision yet between Purdue and Kemp in this marquee governor's race that we're all talking about headed into the May primaries. Besides David Purdue, Trump has endorsed candidates for U.S. Senate, Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, Secretary of State, Insurance Commissioner, and a congressman in the 10th District. Of all of them, the biggest name is, of course, Herschel Walker. He's running for the U.S. Senate, former UGA football legend. Does his popularity come from his celebrity status or Trump support or actual policies? You know, you can never underestimate the power of football in the South and the force of UGA football fans. I do think that that reputation has given Walker an immediate edge. I mean, we see it in the polling. He's blowing his opponents out of the water in this primary, even a sitting agriculture commissioner. And on top of that, we're seeing Walker be able to kind of rise above the standard political dynamics that we are assuming. For example, he can kind of walk this line with President Trump that almost nobody else can because their relationship goes back so far. He can get away with saying things like, well, you know, let's stop talking about 2020. And, you know, President Trump is doing his own thing and I'm running my own campaign and that's OK. Pretty much no other endorsee of President Trump can say that kind of thing. So is it the celebrity status then? Is he running literally on celebrity? I mean, to have such a lead in the polls without an existing political reputation or voting record to show is indicative of his celebrity, right? And I think the question becomes, as we get closer to the primary, as his opponents ramp up their attacks in the primary, maybe he gets it through the primary and Raphael Warnock targets him. These little gaffes that we've seen from Herschel Walker, who has been a celebrity, have come up like questioning, you know, evolution and things that just make you scratch your head. The question becomes, though, do voters care about that or does the celebrity matter beyond things like policy? Now, what is interesting is the people that are running against him are really trying to step it up. There is, for example, this candidate, Josh Clark, who's trying to differentiate himself from Walker, and he is giving away an AR-15 every week until the primary. He has an ad out, so just to sort of get some attention. It's fascinating what people do. Uh, Gary Black, the former agriculture commissioner, is having a football theme in his ad, to sort of saying, you know, I play on a different field. Yeah. Latham Sadler, another opponent, was, uh, I believe, a Navy SEAL, if I remember mm -hmm. correctly. And his ad is saying, you know, I wore a different kind of uniform. I was on the battlefield, too. So you're right. They're not pulling punches. They're trying. But again, I mean, our latest poll shows Walker at 57 percent in the primary. That's a big gap for somebody to, to uh, make up in six weeks. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure how much any of this really matters, because at least just from what we saw at the Trump rally alone, 
out of all of the candidates who got up on the stage, I'd say that Herschel Walker and maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene were the people who got the crowd most enthusiastic. Again, these are the basiest of base voters, but those were the folks that got people excited. I'd say there was not as much enthusiasm for the other candidates who are trying to play a Trump type of candidate to be a Trump-like character. The people who seemed to do it more genuinely, like Walker and Marjorie Taylor Greene, got people excited. David Perdue, I'd say the response was a little bit more muted. That's interesting. But are we seeing any real policy differences now between this Trump slate, as we are starting to call it, I guess, and other Republicans? Or is it all personality driven? We're seeing some of them try. I mean, most clearly we're seeing David Perdue try in the governor's race to create daylight between himself and Governor Kemp, who, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, you would say there's probably not a policy they would disagree on. But he's finding these issues to try to wedge um, some space, like calling for an elimination of the state income tax um, while Kemp has pushed for a cut because eliminating the state income tax is a lot of money. You know, taking a stand on kind of issues to the side like Buckhead cityhood and the electric vehicle plant Rivian that uh, Kemp has bragged about, Purdue has decided to attack. So we're, we're seeing him try. But again, the biggest differentiator between these two candidates and the reason why this race has national implications is Trump. That's it. I mean, if you're if Sam talked to voters at the Trump rally, it's confusing because besides Trump, their policies line up. And this race really seems to be shaping up to be the truest distillation of the power of the Trump endorsement. And down ballot, you see the same thing. Though I will say that when we talk about the difference being Trump, part of what's embedded in that is this idea of what happened in the 2020 election, as we talked about at the top of this podcast. You know, that most of the Trump endorsed candidates, with maybe the exception of Herschel Walker, as you mentioned, are relitigating what happened in 2020 with these false claims about a stolen election. And kind of the dividing line is whether they did enough to supposedly help Trump overturn that election. So I think there are some policy differences Emma has just talked about between Purdue and Kemp on the margins, but I I think the real through line at the same time is beliefs about what happened in the 2020 election and their willingness to back Trump up on his false claims and grievances about what happened between November and January of 2020 and 21. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you think Governor Kemp has used the legislative session mm -hmm. to sort of neutralize some of these things that might come at him in policy differences? What has he done just because of the primary? Is there some things you can point to that say this policy is in place because he has primary opposition from David Perdue. Governor Kemp would never agree to this. I know. His, his staff would say that he intended to pass constitutional carry, abolishing weapons permits, before David Perdue got in the race. But the timing did happen where David Perdue called for it and then Brian Kemp called for it and passed the bill. Kemp has used this legislative session really effectively because he has the support of majority of Republicans in the General Assembly to get uh, a pretty great slate of uh, issues that he can brag about in the primary and in the general election. You know, expanding Medicaid to new mothers up to one year. Not really a primary base thing, but that's interesting in the general election. Um, but a last minute push to pave the way for restrictions on transgender girls to play sports in high schools. That was something Governor Kemp literally said within hours of the session. Sam and I heard it. Uh, guys, I'd still like this to pass tonight. And there it went. And that was 
That's a pure primary play. I mean, that was a striking moment to me just because it seems like Governor Kemp got almost everything that he had asked for in his State of the State address. And out of all of those issues, it seems like the issue of trans kids in sports is the one that has the potential to most alienate general election voters in November. I'd say, you know, there were a lot of controversial issues this session that may be at the top of that list. And for him to go out there and say, you know, with hours to go in the session, I still want to get this issue done. That was surprising to me. It felt like, you know, he could have been okay headed into the primary with letting that one go, but he held firm and said, I want to get this passed. But this is a part of a national movement that we've seen in states around the country. And, you know, it's very possible that David Perdue would have criticized Kemp had that not passed or had he not expressed interest in it passing. Though there have been conservative governors in other states like Indiana and Utah that vetoed these things. So, you know, it, it I think says even more that Kemp put his foot down and said, I want to get this passed. But those governors are probably not facing a Republican primary next month. This is a good time to take a break. When we come back, we'll have some campaign trivia for you. This is Georgia Votes 2022. I'm Susanna Capaluto. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org. Welcome back to Georgia Votes 2022 this week with Sam Greenglass and Emma Hurt. So while the Republican primary may suck all the political oxygen out of this primary season, Democrats have some competitive races as well. Stacey Abrams will be on their ballot, but she has no opposition. Attorney General, Lieutenant Governor, Secretary of State, almost every statewide race, though, has a Democratic primary. And having Democrats in so many competitive races is maybe a sign the party has matured. Emma, what do you think? I mean, Susanna, you could speak more to the history of this than I can. But I do think that the fact that we have these competitive primaries shows that Democrats have built out a bench of young, ambitious Mm -hmm charismatic candidates who are serious about making a difference and jumping in. And it hasn't been an accident. You know, the narrative is that Democrats have been really good at registering new voters. And yes, they have done that. But what they also have done is engaging those voters, talking to them all the time and recruiting new candidates, starting at the bottom of the ballot. I mean, there are two competing liberal groups in Georgia trying to recruit Democratic women to run for office. There are two competing groups. Republicans don't have any. And so the fact that we have, you know, at the lieutenant governor's race, three sitting lawmakers, two former lawmakers and a former AG candidate all running in the Democratic primary is not an accident. 
And so one part of the story that we've been talking about is this broad bench for candidates at a statewide level. But there's also something else going on here in the Democratic side in the primary, and that's this fight brewing in the 7th Congressional District where incumbent Democratic representatives Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux are going to be going head-to-head. And this is for a totally different reason entirely, and that's basically redistricting. McBath's district became way more conservative-leaning when lawmakers redrew the maps after the last census. And so she decided to challenge Bordeaux in the 7th District, which has become even more favorable to Democrats. And, you know, I think this race is important because it gets to Democrats' complaints that Georgia's population growth has been driven by people of color in urban areas, but that is not reflected in these new maps. And, you know, with the Republican-controlled legislature fully in the driver's seat on map making, the reality is that there just aren't really any competitive swing districts anymore, for the most part, at least. And so the primaries are where the real action is, and these will be mostly foregone conclusions when we head into November. It was designed for Democrats to lose a seat. That's basically how Republicans designed this map. I mean, I think it's fair to say that this primary is Democrats' worst nightmare, to have two seats flipped that they fought for, um, have one taken away, and watch their two incumbents fight it out. Now, talking about Georgia being competitive for Democrats this year, I have this trivia question. And for those attending the April 19th WABE Politics Trivia Night with Sam Greenglass and Raul Bali, you may want to pay attention. You can find out more about that trivia night on WABE.org. But here's the question. In the 2021 runoff election, won by Democrats John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, there was a third race on the ballot, won by a Republican. What was that race? Susanna, I only know this because I know you love talking about it, and we've talked about it several times, and it's the Public Service Commission, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I think they regulate utilities like Georgia Power, and I'm pretty sure, at least from what you've told me, that all the members are Republican, right? Yes, and I always use this as an example that Georgia may still be more of a red state than a purple state, but it's purpling because if Georgians elect a Democrat to the Public Service Commission, it's always a statewide vote, the state will have come full circle and we will know that people care enough about the Democratic Party to vote down ballot for Democrats as well. Because nobody knows anything about the Public Service Commission except Republican or Democrat. So if they're clicking a box for one or the other, that shows pure party Pure loyalty. party. Because and most people don't know what the Public Service Commission does. Except probably our environment editor, Molly Samuel, Ask who Molly's- loves talking about the PSC. <laughs> <laughs> and there'll be that chance this for is- people to vote on Public Service Commission in November, where there are two seats up for election. I want to ask you both, what are the big themes that you're keeping an eye on this year? Um, Okay, so let's start chronologically, I guess. In the primary, I am watching how effective it is, as we've talked about, to relitigate 2020. And also, what damage does relitigating 2020 do to people's trust in these elections that we're headed into in 2022 and beyond when, of course... Uh, president will be up again in 2024. In that vein, also be curious to watch how the new voting law that Republicans enacted last year in 2021, which included changes to early voting, absentee ballots, drop boxes, all of these things that directly affect the ways people vote. I'll be curious to see how that plays out in our first really big election since that was put into place. And 
as we've kind of nodded at talking about the legislative session, I'm really interested in the politics around schools and education, both in some of these issues that kind of stem from the pandemic, like mask rules, but also ones that touch more on some of the culture war issues like race and gender, as we talk about how race is taught in schools and trans kids playing sports. I wonder how resonant those will be on the campaign trail as Republicans seem to be really leaning into those issues. And then I'm also curious how the national political climate is going to undergird all of this. It's not great for Democrats right now. Um, I think Democrats would even acknowledge that. And I'm curious how that trickles down to races at the state level and the local level in Georgia. Um, You know, thinking about Biden's stalled agenda in Congress, inflation being high, COVID is still sticking around, there is a war in Ukraine. I'm curious how all of these things that are happening in Washington and in the world kind of begin to play out here in Georgia. There's so much going on here, and a lot of it is relevant nationally. But I think in Georgia, the big question of this election is, was last time a fluke for Democrats? Was it a Trump effect, which is what Republicans say. They point to the Public Service Commission win and say, no, Georgia's still a red state. And this is Democrats' shot to prove their theory that, no, in fact, Georgia is a blue state. And we'll see how Georgia's changing demographics continue to influence that. For me, the main thing will be voter turnout. Can the parties bring their people to the polls? Because without the easy mail-in voting we had last time and convenient drop boxes, without mobile units that drove through Fulton County, and they collected like 6,000 votes in 2020, that's half the tally of Trump's 12,000 vote loss. Republicans have made sure all these avenues are no longer available. So will people who voted conveniently by mail do the extra paperwork required? Will those people who happen to vote in a mobile unit that came to their neighborhood seek out an early voting location? This midterm will really be decided on the margins, and those margins are super tight. And that's to me, is the most fascinating thing. How do you motivate people to vote and educate them about all these changing rules. I mean, there was tons of changes in 2021. There's now been one election, the largely the municipal elections last November uh, under this new law. But also there were attempts to make more changes this legislative session to election law. Those did not go through, but there are changes to how the Georgia Bureau of Investigation can get involved in elections. So it's almost a moving target that voters really are constantly having to try and keep up with what are the rules for me to get access to the ballot. But you can't just show up at your early voting location. Yes, it's harder by mail. And yes, to convince people gets harder. But generally, you can just show up to vote. And how do you get people to do that? That's the magic sauce everyone's trying to find. Lots of ads, I'm telling you. There will <laughs> be money. so many ads coming. Yeah. How do you do it? Money. Money. And there will be <laughs> And we'll plenty. talk about that a lot this, <laughs> this campaign season. Another podcast. So on this happy note, um, I just want to ask, as a Georgia newbie, where in Georgia are the best campaign stops that I should be looking forward to when we all get out on the road headed into this election season? I would go to Savannah. I would ask your boss to cover a rally in Savannah. 
I'm glad. <laughs> Luckily, my boss is sitting right here and is making the recommendation. So that is awesome. I was going to ask because Don Gagne, the NPR political reporter, has always said you have to find that 15 minute vacation on every campaign reporting trip. <laughs> and so I want to know where are the good spots where I'm going to have a great 15 minute vacation on the side of a Camp Purdue Abrams rally. So anywhere on the coast, Savannah on down to St. Mary's. But I'm also really partial to the North Georgia stops. I love Dahlonega, where I'm going to go right after this to see Governor Kemp, Dalton, Rome. It's so beautiful up there. And uh, you can find really good Mexican food in Dalton. Fun fact. And then the other thing, I would just make a plug for Albany, because I think Southwest Georgia is a place you really need to understand. And there's a really good brewery in Albany called Pretoria Field. So there's your 15-minute vacation. Love this. Eh, Great. Well, that's it for our first edition of Georgia Votes 2022. Rate this podcast, subscribe, send it to a friend. I'm Susanna Capaluto with Emma Hurd of Axios and Sam Greenglass, WABE politics reporter. Emma and Sam, this was fun. Let's keep on going. See you next time. Georgia Votes 2022 is a production of WABE Atlanta. See you next week.